Now, how am I going to preach after that? You may not know this coming from Houghton, but I, I was reading a hymnologist, and apparently hymnologists think that that hymn is unsingable. They don't like the tune for that hymn, and I always think those hymnologists just need to visit Houghton. They would hear that hymn sung really, really well. Well, it's nice to be uh, back preaching this morning. I, um, I really have enjoyed my first month or so here serving in ministry, and um, there's a steep learning curve always when you start something new, so I'm learning a lot. Um, but really have appreciated all the kind feedback I've gotten from folks and uh, the chances to get to, to meet and know most of you better. Uh, when I was last here in the pulpit with you, I gave what I think was a pretty good sermon. So if you weren't here, you missed it. It was really great. <laughs> well, in fairness, it was a pretty high-minded sermon. And I talked a lot about the danger of putting other people in boxes. And we used the text, we talked about the woman who came and anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and then dried them with her hair. And a Pharisee saw this and he said, if this man, if Jesus were really a prophet, he would know, quote, what kind of woman this is. What kind of woman this is. And uh, we talked about how easy it is to deal with people by trying to figure out what kind of people they are putting a label on them and putting them in boxes and often putting them in boxes that are labeled untrustworthy or I can ignore this guy safely or something like that. That's a long label for a box, but you get the idea. The idea being that's what we like to do with people because we know so many people, especially in a very connected world, is part of the way we deal with that is to say, you know what, I can't know everybody individually. I can't treat everybody as a person. So I'm gonna weed some people out who I can just ignore. And so we talked about how difficult it is, but how our calling is to treat people like Jesus, who didn't see uh, that woman as that kind of woman, but saw an actual person with whom no doubt he had some grave disagreements about how she was living her life, but yet he was able to receive a gift from her and renew a relationship with her because he was unwilling to see her simply as a category, but to see her as a complex uh, often difficult, contradictory, but real, genuine, flesh and blood human being, like the rest of us. Well, as I say, it was a pretty high-minded sermon, and like I say, I think it was a pretty good one, but I did leave one crucial question unanswered. How? How do we do that? Right? It's pretty easy uh, to stand up in front of a group of people and tell them that all we need to do is stop putting people in boxes. But simply standing up in front of people and telling them not to do something is no guarantee that they will do it. For one thing, uh, and there's several reasons for that. For one thing, the sermon that I preached before was about 25 minutes long, and it was about a month ago. And no doubt since then, you went out immediately after that 25-minute sermon, and you went back into a world where the normal way we deal with people is to put them in boxes. So for 25 minutes, you heard, don't do that. And for the last five weeks, you've been hearing, do that. It's the only way to survive. A sermon can only do so much because a preacher can't preach all week long, try as some of us might. And truthfully, even beyond that, we all know that there are things that we should be doing, and someone can tell us it would be good for us to do, uh, but we find it difficult or impossible to do them, even though we know it's good for us, right? We know that pie will make us fat, but who among us can resist the last piece of cherry pie, especially when no one is looking, right? 
When I preached that sermon, I think I appealed to something in us that said, hey, there's just something in me that, that resonates with that. I know it's true. I know I can't keep putting people in boxes, but, but I think maybe I may have also caused us to despair a little bit because it seems like an enormous task. How do we get there? How do we resist the powerful urge to treat other people this way? How do we resist that temptation, that temptation which is reinforced by our own silliness and sinfulness, and also just by our sense of this is the way the world works? How do we become people who treat other people like Jesus treated them? How do we become people who treat others as human rather than simply data to be stuffed in boxes and filed away? How do we love like Jesus loved? Well, there are lots of ways to do this, and there are lots of ways that we've tried. I was uh, just thinking, you know, what have Christians tried in the last few years? And I thought about the WWJD bracelets. Do you remember the WWJD bracelets? It's hard for me to understand this, but the college students who are coming this year have never known a world without them. Um, but uh, I think they were probably mid-90s, early 90s that they started. And, and the idea behind this bracelet, of course, is that you'll look down at the bracelet in any given situation and you'll say, what would Jesus do? And then presumably you'll go and do that rather than the other thing that you were thinking you might do. Now, I want to be careful when talking about this because I dislike when Christians are very harshly critical of other Christians. And I'm sure the WWJD bracelets have done a lot of good and heaven knows it would be good for me sometimes to think about what Jesus would do. Uh, But they're not foolproof, are they? Truth be told, I haven't noticed a measurable difference in people who wear them and people who don't, how they act. There's a couple weaknesses with them, I think, and one of them, of course, is that it's not always immediately clear what Jesus would do. I thought about what if, uh, what if a group of us had just gone up to the inner city and we passed a, a man who was sitting on the sidewalk and he said, you know, please donate. I'm hungry. I haven't eaten for five days. And uh, so all four of us looked down at our bracelets, let's suppose, and we all came to different conclusions about what Jesus would do. Right? You might say to me, hey, I'm looking at my bracelet. Jesus would definitely just give this guy money. Right? I, I know that we don't know what he's going to do with it, but that's what we're called to do. We're called on to give. We're not called on to manage other people's money. And another of us might look at our bracelet and say, you know what? This guy is not going to use this money to buy food. This guy's going to use money to buy drugs. So I'll go buy him a sandwich, but I'm not going to just give him money. And someone else might say, what would Jesus do? This guy doesn't really need food at all. What he really needs is someone to talk to him. And so another of us might just plop down next to the guy and, and talk to him and, and uh, see about what's going on in his life and try to connect with him on an interpersonal level. Another of us might look at our bracelets and say, you know, as important as that need is, it's just not what I'm called to address. And so I'm going to hope, I'm going to pray for that person. I'm going to hope God sends a Christian who really is gifted to deal with the situation. But that's not me. Now, all four of those things are legitimate things that Jesus might do in a situation, uh, but it's not obvious what Jesus would do. These are all legitimate responses, but, and sometimes the bracelet functions as this kind of reminder to do what we deep down know is right. But we forget sometimes that our deep down sense of what's right and what's wrong doesn't always come directly from God. Not to get all sociological, right? But our ideas about what's right and wrong, our gut-level intuitions, come from all over the place. They come from the media we expose ourselves to. They come from our parents. They come from the churches we belong to. They come from our friends. They come from our family. 
This may sound overly pessimistic, but I don't know if I want to live in a world where people are running around just doing what they know is right. Doesn't sound all that different than the rest of the world, really. So that's one of the problems with that approach. And of course, the other is the bracelet itself. I got to thinking the other day, uh, I have uh, never had surgery, but I would be terrified if I was going in for surgery and the last thing I saw as I was, the anesthesia was being administered and I was fading out as if the surgeon looked down at a bracelet and said, what would a surgeon do? What would a surgeon do? If I were a surgeon, what would I do right now? Or if I went to a a concert and it was an orchestra concert and it was going to be great, but every time there was a rest, the trumpet players were looking down and saying, what would a trumpet player do? I, I thought you were a surgeon, right? I thought you were a trumpet player and you know what these people do. Right? And, uh, in the same sort of way, I think Christians are called on to extend the ministry of Jesus into the world to, to be Jesus. And so we don't need Christians who are always sort of wringing our hands and thinking, okay, now, This situation, what would Jesus do? Okay, well, I got through that. Now what would Jesus do? The world needs Christians who are capable of going out and skillfully, effortlessly, in a sense, being Jesus. Simply being um, the people that Jesus has called us to be. Unafraid, bold, knowing we're going to make some mistakes along the way, but confident enough that God's good and is going to overcome them so that we don't have to keep fearing failure. How do we become this sort of person? How do we become the people who are Jesus as naturally as we breathe? That's the question I want to deal with when I'm preaching this summer. I'm I'm preaching, this is the first of four times I'll be preaching in the next few weeks. And I want to talk about four different strategies that we can use to become more like Jesus, to have a more Christ-like posture towards the rest of the world. And before I get too far into that, I do want to tell you, we are extremely blessed to approach this problem from a Wesleyan perspective. I know that we come from all kinds of different backgrounds here, and this may not be a typical Wesleyan church in that people come from all different sorts of backgrounds to be here. But Wesleyan theological approach to this is just great. The idea that God desires and makes us capable of being holy and gives us his spirit as a reliable helper in that charge toward holiness. That we can expect, in a sense, to be like Jesus and not despair. And that God's spirit is always present to point us back to Jesus. It's a real blessing to approach it as a Wesleyan. Well, one of these strategies, like I say, is is pretty clearly on display in this morning's passage that Andrew uh, so ably read. The passage is about forgiveness. And forgiveness is at the heart of what we've been talking about. When someone sins against you, when someone harms you, or when someone is just plain wrong you have the option of putting them in a box and filing them away and putting them out of your life. You can do this by staying angry at them forever. You can do this by being icy and holding a grudge. You can split the difference and be passive-aggressive and be nice on the outside but still burning with resentment on the inside. But forgiveness is taking that person out of the box and allowing them to be fully human again a real person again. When someone wrongs us, it's tempting to make them into a monster. And forgiveness says, you know what? You're not a monster. And I'm going to treat you as a person again. I'm going to be open to you. I'm going to be vulnerable to you. In this passage, we have a a classic example of a person who doesn't forgive. There's a man who's owed an impossible sum of money, millions upon millions of dollars, and he told his creditor, who was the king, no less, says, give me time and I will pay you back 
everything. That, of course, is ridiculous. There's no way the man could have paid everything back. No normal working person could ever pay that sum of money back. The fact that he was even in this situation suggests that he had been extremely wasteful with something the king had given him already. And he also apparently thinks so highly of himself as to say, you know that gift the king gave me, that loan the king gave me, that wasn't such a big deal. I could get that. I could do that on my own if I had enough time. So he goes to him and he says, give me time. I'll pay you back. The king says, though, don't bother. Don't bother. I forgive you. Don't bother trying to pay it back. I forgive you the debt. Now, we would, of course, expect that the man would be thrilled at the good news. We would expect, I decided just to get a sense of the thrill for the good news. I was going to go back this, uh, this week and watch the end of It's a Wonderful Life again. And you see Jimmy Stewart running around. He's a Merry Christmas, Bedford Fall. You know, that whole thing he does, you know. And that's the kind of thing we would expect, right? We would expect him to just be so thrilled at the fact that now he's off the hook. It also made me cooler, incidentally. It was a good way to cool off this week, just to watch It's a Wonderful Life. But anyway, instead, though, we don't don't actually see him do that. Instead, we see him, uh, he sees another man who owes him a few hundred bucks, a pittance, uh, just this tiny sum of money. And he grabs him and he chokes him. And he says, pay me back what you owe me. And the debtor says, give me time, give me time, be patient, I'll pay you back. Just what he said to the king. But he refuses. And he throws the guy into jail. Now, the the point of the parable, of course, is to say that your ability to forgive others, which is, of course, to let them out of boxes, the ability to treat another person as fully human is directly tied to your ability to be grateful for what you've received. If you're not grateful for what you've received, you're not likely to be satisfied with what you have. And instead of being able to open yourself up to other people, You're going to have to close yourself off to them. Make them obstacles or allies to you getting what you want. You know, when we think about this parable and the the man's debt, we often think about Jesus' death on the cross as his debt. We we think about the the man's immense debt that he owed the king, and we think, well, that's, that's the debt that this is referring to. But I think we ought to think more broadly, not least because Jesus hasn't died yet at the time of this parable, um, but, but also because everything in our life is a gift, Right? Everything that we have, not just our justification, not just the fact we're right with God, but the strength in our bodies, the meals on the table, the, the hidden beauty that's visible to anybody who wants to take time to look at it. Right? The paycheck that comes, the visit from a friend, the time for quiet reflection, the hustle and bustle of our children. All of that is a gift. We have to recognize it as a gift. We can't earn it. We we can't repay it. That's what was so drastically wrong with the man in the parable. He squandered it, and somehow he thought he could get it all back on his own. He took for granted the fact that the king forgave his debt, and he acted like that gift was not a big deal. It was something he could do for himself if he had enough time. The parable states a truth negatively, but it has a positive kind of converse If we learn to be grateful, we can learn to love other people like Jesus loved them. These are two things we don't often connect, but I think this parable connects them. 
If we can learn to be grateful, we can learn to love other people as Jesus loves them. If we can learn to be grateful, we can learn to forgive others. And if we can learn to forgive others, we can let them out of boxes and love them like Jesus loves them. If we can learn to see all of life as a gift, freely given to us, we don't have to use people or avoid people, but we can give ourselves to people and open ourselves up to relationship with them. But that's only possible if we learn to be grateful. Now, at, the, at this time, whenever I hear a sermon that verges on saying, now you be grateful, kids, I think about my mother. Uh, sorry, mom. My mom's going to listen to this. This is not good. But uh, it makes me think about my mother and uh, the fact that I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, and New Jersey, believe it or not, is well known for produce, at least within New Jersey. It is the garden state, after all. Are there other Jersey people here? Just, I feel at home to see a couple of Jersey people around. So, and the part of New Jersey I'm from puts the garden in garden state. And so it's a big deal when the Jersey tomatoes come on and the Jersey peaches come on. But another crop that's very prominent in New Jersey is lima beans. Now, you probably don't all know this, but Jersey lima beans are a big deal. Jersey lima beans are disgusting. I mean, it's lima beans in general. It has nothing to do with Jersey lima. I'm sorry. If there are those of you that like lima beans, that's fine. But I'm not a lima bean person. And so every year, my dad would raise these lima beans. And every year, he'd bring them in from the garden. And, you know, we'd get them all together and prepare them and whatever. And my mom would serve them. And she'd say, you don't know how lucky you are. She'd say, <laughs> she'd say in my, in growing up in Houghton, we had to eat these canned lima beans. They were terrible. But these, your father's fresh, wonderful lima beans, straight from the garden. And they're so good. And I thought, I'm just, I can't, ugh. So I don't want to be that person up here because my mom would say, you need to be grateful for something I was just incapable of being grateful for. In that moment, I would think to myself, I wish I could make myself like lima beans and thus be grateful, but I just couldn't, right? I couldn't make that sort of shift in my head. Try as I might, I wanted to. So I'm not trying to say, now you be grateful because there's no way to shift the, the, the mindset quite so easily, is there? I can't tell you to go out in the world and say, you know, the world that you looked at and you said, oh, it's pretty terrible coming in. I, you know, this, is the, this bill is overdue and whatever. I have to have this done on my house and I can't pay for it and my uh, relationships are fractured. I can't say, now you be grateful. It's tempting. <laughs> but I can't. Right? There has to be a different way to learn gratitude. In the small group I led, we studied um, C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory a couple years ago. And uh, w- there was a sermon we read where he was talking about our intuitions, the things we feel in our hearts, and our ideas, those things we know in our heads. And Lewis says you can change the ideas in your heads pretty easily. Someone might uh, give you a new idea that you find compelling. But, but our intuitions, those things we feel in our gut, we can only change by what he lovely, uh, cheerily calls mortification. We only learn this stuff in our heart. We only learn that intuition. We only learn, frankly, that sense of gut level right and wrong by changing our habits, our patterns. Um, My uh, love for Philadelphia sports is undimmed. I grew up in Philadelphia. I love Philadelphia. Even the Phillies, even though they're terrible this year, I love all those teams. But the only reason I can still love them at a distance is that I can still watch them thanks to the internet. Right? I can still be back there and I can still have a habit of watching them. But if I were away, I wouldn't feel as passionately about it. Habits change our hearts. Habits change our intuition. So how do we learn gratitude? Do we offer a gratitude 101 course at the college? No, we learn gratitude by saying thank you. 
We say thank you. At the end of the day, we we get a journal out and we write three or five or ten things which we are thankful for or which we should be thankful for. And we say thank you for them. That's not to say you're bursting with thanks every night. It's that those first few days, it may be horrible to find ten things. We say thank you to learn gratitude. We say thank you when we come to church on a Sunday, even though we'd rather play golf or be in bed. And I assure you that even pastors have Sundays when we'd rather play golf or be in bed. But we learn to say thank you by coming to the church to say, I get something from you. I understand myself only through you. And so today I give myself to you, body of Christ. We say thank you when we give ourselves completely once we're here. We, I was thinking today how we sing all these different songs and it's so hard. I can't imagine one person who actually likes them all, right? But we say thank you when we sing old hymns that remind us that the only reason we're here today is someone handed something to us. We received it. <laughs> Community's not created, mostly it's received, right? And we say thank you when we sing new songs that remind us that the only reason this community means anything is it goes on forever. Is it always creates something new. When we sing together, we, we acknowledge that we belong to each other, that because your music is my music, your joys are my joys, your burdens are my burdens, your God is my God. And there are other ways to train our hearts. We, we learn gratitude when we bite our tongues when we have an opportunity to justify ourselves. I do this all the time. Well, I mean, I do the wrong thing all the time. I, uh, when we first moved to Houghton, most of you know that we moved and, and I had been a pastor and Jill got a job as a professor. And for those first few months, I didn't know what I was going to do here. We just sort of went on faith that something was going to happen. And I didn't know what that was. And it was scary. It was really scary. And uh, I remember that whenever topic came up in discussion, if there was, and mind you, I'm a good Christian, so I didn't try to do this, but there were just times when it seemed like a good idea for me to mention that I had a PhD too, right? You understand, there are times to mention that, and I just had a time, I felt like I had had to mention that right then. Why? Because deep down in my heart, I felt like I, I needed to say that for the other person to take me seriously as a person, Right? I had to say that because Jill had the job, Jill was in the public, and I was all of a sudden at home with the diapers, and, and, and I, needed, I needed people to know that there was more to me than just a diaper changer. <laughs> what I'm saying is, in reality, I would have said thank you if I had bit my tongue, and I'm learning to bite my tongue, but I, I would have said thank you to bite my tongue and say, God, thank you for the life I have. I don't know where it's going, I don't know what it means, but, but I don't have to justify myself right now because you've justified me. Thank you. And I could say that when I mean it, and I could say that when I don't mean it, and learn gratitude by saying it. There are lots of ways to learn gratitude. We say thank you to God. We say thank you to others. Mostly, I learn gratitude slowly, (laughs) clumsily, but eventually, just by saying thank you again and again and again to God, to anyone who will listen. I say thank you when someone says something to build me up, gives me a gift, or just wishes me well. I say thank you when I feel grateful for anything and when I don't feel grateful for anything, but I should. I say thank you again and again, and eventually I realize that the act of speaking my thanks is making me grateful somehow. It's making me more cognizant of the good things I have and how I didn't earn any of them. And as I say it again and again, something happens. Something strange, something glorious, something miraculous, if you think that way. I learn to read you more sympathetically. I learn to realize that you are fighting a great battle too. 
And I learn to be grateful for the ways you have showed something of God for me, even in the midst of your battle. I begin to realize how many gifts are out there, and I can't, and I realize they're all for me, and I can't gather them in no matter how hard I try, so I may as well push some of them out. My precious illusion that I'm a self-made man disappears. Goodness, how could it be a self-made man? I came back to this community where my grandparents laid a cornerstone for me to stand on. It's like not just standing on third base and thinking I hit a triple. It's like standing between third and home, right? That illusion that I'm a self-made man is so strong, though, and when I'm grateful, it just disappears. I, I realize that I'm heir to so much goodness, and I even realize that so much of that goodness comes from my connection with you, and it's in that moment that I can forgive your debt to me. The very act of saying thank you is making me willing to release you and let you be a person again. Because I don't need to use you to get what I need. Because when I say thank you, I realize I already have what I need. When millions are given to me every day, what is the few hundred bucks you owe me? Really, in the end, do I want to hold on to that thoughtless and insensitive thing you said if it means not enjoying what God has given to me? Honestly now, do I want to remember that time you failed to live up to expectations enough that I'm willing to not appreciate what God has given? The creation, the cross, the empty tomb. Am I willing to throw that aside to hang on to that? Do I treasure my feeling of being wronged that much? Do I want to enjoy my feeling of moral superiority so much that I'm not willing to enjoy the gifts God gives me? In light of all that, in light of all God's given, do I want to freeze you out of my life because you're just plain wrong about Obamacare or hydrofracking? Even if you really are wrong about Obamacare and hydrofracking, and half of you are, right? And especially when it's only the fact that you and I have a relationship with each other that you care the faintest bit what I think about Obamacare or hydrofracking. I'm not saying that what you think about those things or or one of the other thousand issues that divide us is not important. They're all important. And God's going to hold us accountable for how we think and act about those things. But when we're grateful for all that we've received, we remember that we deal with each other not as data to be filed away, And not as enemies, but as friends, or if you want to really up the ante, as brothers, as sisters, responsible for each other. And strange as it sounds, if we want to renew that relationship, it starts out there with simply being thankful, simply saying thank you. Let's pray. God, today we say thank you together. We say thank you for the good things that you've given to us. We say thank you for the things which we know in our heart of hearts are good, but we're frustrated with right now, or we can't see, or we feel like we don't have time to acknowledge. We say thank you. And God, we pray that in that act of thanksgiving, that you will be faithful. That you will change our hearts, that as we say thank you, as we learn to first recognize what we should be thankful for, that you will change our hearts and make us truly grateful. That you will shape us into the kind of people who can truly be open to each other, truly allow each other into our lives for the sake of our own sanity and health, but also for the sake of your witness in this world through this body of believers whom we love and cherish so much. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.